Bradley is right. That was a really encouraging meeting, and I hope that you are very encouraged to hear about it. God is really doing something uh, special over there, I think. And just so you know, a lot of the teachers that work over there and the administrators have been there for 20 or 30 years. It's a very long time investing in these students, which is beautiful. Um, our scripture passage this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, really verses 10 through 23, but kind of 9 as well. So I'm going to start in verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. The passage will be up here on the screen, and there are some blue Bibles and some of the seat baskets in front of you. Those are for your use and possession as well. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of and honoring of God's Word. First Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, although he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. This is indeed quite a word and winding and gets to many different subjects, Lord, so we keenly sense our need for help this morning. We believe that the only way that we can really understand this text is if your Holy Spirit would work in great power, and so we're praying for miraculous things as Jay was talking about. Lord, we don't want to just come and go this morning, but we want to be changed. We want our affections for you to increase. We want to leave here beholding the face of Jesus with joy, so we're asking for that, despite, honestly, the difficult subject matter this morning, maybe because of it. You, you use, Lord, beautiful yet difficult passages for our good. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's the thing. We're not thinking about death enough, and that's why we're polarized and big mad with each other these days and the church of Jesus Christ, and beyond. Amen? Shall we just, shall we just close in prayer? 
Now, some of you, I think, are understandably thinking, dude, what do you mean I don't think about death enough? I mean, I read the news. Have you seen what's in it recently? I mean, have you, have you accidentally watched cable news at the gym for even 10 seconds? And, of course, some of you have or are currently grieving the deaths of those who are close to you. What I mean is that we don't really think about our own death enough. Plenty of us are morbidly curious with the deaths of other people, both real people and fictional people. Why else would we be watching so many shows about murder and listening to so many podcasts about murder and watching so much cable news about murder? I saw recently an article, I think it was in The Atlantic, that half of U.S. adults say that they listen to murder podcasts, a third of them at least once per week. But we're less inclined to think about our own death and what happens after death. In part, because we're around real death, not TV death, far less than we were 100 years ago. Now people die in nursing homes and hospitals, not in the parlor of your family home. In part, because we're increasingly disconnected from transcendent and the idea of eternality in favor of what's right in front of us, which makes death very complicated to deal with and honestly a subject to be avoided since within this framework where transcendence is kind of distant or non-existent, death becomes the end of everything, really the end of meaning. So we'd rather not talk about it. And perhaps we're inclined to ignore the topic of our own death, in part because we think of ourselves as somewhat immortal. You know, if we just eat paleo and and we stick around long enough for some technological advancements, maybe we'll be around forever. And so we quarrel with one another, and we're envious of one another because we've lost the narrative and we don't know where the story is going. And in the worst cases, we tear apart the church of Jesus Christ because we're making mountains out of molehills and living for ourselves because all we can see is the here and the now. And we build things that don't matter all that much because we're reluctant to make the sacrifices necessary to build what does matter eternally because we're not all that sure about eternity. And those of us who are enduring the very real costs of following Jesus feel like the joke's on us because we forget that those who reject Christ and even kind of give us the business along the way will face a reckoning. And so we are gathered this morning to remember death, in a sense. Remembering that inspires us to live faithfully as Jesus followers, rejecting quarreling and selfishness, things that were plaguing the church in Corinth with quite a lot of hope to boot. Two questions this morning as we remember death. Number one, what are you building? And then number two, do you know that you're a temple? As Paul asked, do you know that? What are you building? Do you know that you're a temple? We'll start with that first question. What are you building? On one hand, this is a passage for spiritual leaders Another set of 
exhortations and reminders in line with what we talked about last week. But on the other hand, this passage is for anyone invested in building God's kingdom, so to speak, to borrow language from the construction metaphor that Paul pivots to here in the back half of chapter 3 after previously speaking in agricultural terms. Look at the second part again of verse 9 through verse 15. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. That each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a ward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The building of anything legitimate, as you know, begins with a foundation. And the foundation of any church or any ministry endeavor connected to the church must always be, as we were just singing, Jesus Christ. Paul laid that foundation in Corinth as a master builder. Look at verse 10 by proclaiming Christ crucified. And he was so serious about this foundation that he told a different church. You can see this in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. He was so serious about this foundation that he told them, Hey, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we originally preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Foundation of the church of Jesus Christ cannot be a particular personality. It cannot be a worship style. It cannot be a super fun children's ministry. It cannot even be a heart for the city. It cannot be, heaven forbid, an alternative gospel that maybe emphasizes prosperity or, or works-based righteousness or political syncretism or whatever. The foundation is and must always be Christ. Verse 11. And the message we proclaim to all, that Jesus Christ was crucified, and in doing so, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the foundation and that is what we proclaim, just as Paul did. And so we rally around that and we make a big deal about that in our preaching and in our teaching and in our discipleship and on our website and in our posture toward the community. In fact, for a whole lot of reasons, the primary topic I try to discuss today with people who would not say that they are followers of Jesus is the resurrection of Jesus. I try to have dialogue concerning questions like, what do you know about the resurrection of Jesus? Have you considered the evidence for it? What would it take for you to believe it? And I start there because, church, that is the issue that holds everything else together. 
And by the way, it's something that you can legitimately look into and research historically. And good news, this is the golden age of resurrection scholarship. Praise God, you're in for it here. Two of the strongest resources on this subject being N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God and Michael Lacona's The Resurrection of Jesus. It's like 1,600 pages total, but it's good reading. And then the second topic I try to address is the common objection. You know, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? That's what everybody wants to know these days. That's not true. The second topic that I topic about is usually the authority of Scripture. Can we trust the Bible? That sort of thing. I'm telling you, have your conversations about the resurrection of Jesus and the authority of Scripture. Jesus is the foundation. And then we build. Yes, under the spiritual leadership of elders and apostles and so forth. But all disciples of Jesus are in it together. Which brings us to a fork in the road. We can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Or we can build with wood and hay and straw. Why build with gold, silver, or precious stones? I mean, all of that is very costly these days. Go to Lowe's to buy some basic garden rock. And they'll be all like, okay, that, that, that little bag you have will be $45, but if you would like to buy the contractor bundle of five bags, we will take a dollar off per bag. That's a lot of rocks. It's very costly to build with gold and silver and precious stones, but not to be too dramatic or anything here, it's worth it if you're dying. Imagine telling that to the Lowe's cashier. You know, like, Michael, death comes to all, so give me all five of those bags. <clears throat> it's costly, but it's worth it if you're dying. Because when the day of judgment comes, which unless you're alive, when Christ returns, will be subsequent to your death. Look at verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, that is, the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Those who made the very costly decision to build with gold and silver and precious stones, their work will withstand the fire, and they will receive a reward. Verse 14. Those who save some coin by building with wood and hay and straw, their work, will burn up, according to Paul, like an old Christmas tree and a bonfire, verse 15. Though the builder will himself be saved, but only as through fire. And by now you can probably tell that we're not really talking about building supplies, are we? We're talking about the kingdom work of costly, sacrificial obedience for the sake of loving God and our neighbors the work of denying ourselves and taking up our cross in order to follow Jesus, work that will survive the fires of judgment and endure into eternity with the builder receiving a reward from God. And conversely, we're talking about the work of excessive self-concern and self-interest, work invested more into your 
personal kingdom, then God's kingdom work that will not withstand the fires of judgment and will not retain any eternal significance. In that case, the builder will presumably be saved, verse 15, if he indeed believed and put his trust in Jesus accordingly, because Jesus saves us, not the quality of our works. But this builder misses out, apparently, on the reward the other builder receives. And I don't know, salvation couched at the end of verse 15 is something akin to escaping from your burning house right before the roof caves in doesn't sound like an A-plus experience. I mean, you made it. But yikes. Sacrificially building up the church of Jesus Christ will cost you. But it's worth it if you're dying and your work will face a reckoning and the reward when Christ returns in judgment. Possibly a reward that affects our experience of the new heaven and earth and our resurrection bodies, although there are some real challenges with that view, so I'm not super certain about that. But at the very least, we can expect some kind of reward when this judgment occurs, even if that reward doesn't continue into eternity. Probably something along the lines of commendation from God. See chapter 4, verse 5. Think, for example, of the, the well-done, good and faithful servant commendation that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 25. And before you say something like, big deal, I'm not really a words of affirmation person anyway. Who cares? Attaboys don't really mean much to me. I'll keep living for myself. Thank you very much. Before you say that, think about the most affirming, encouraging thing someone has ever told you. Something that really moved you emotionally. And now think about hearing something infinitely more encouraging from someone infinitely more wonderful. Namely, Jesus. My dad passed away 11 years ago, as of last weekend. And one of my spiritual mentors sent me a note, just as he's done annually on the specific day my dad passed away. By the way, totally free advice. Make a bereavement calendar and mark the days that people you're close with have lost loved ones, like parents and friends and kids, etc. And then when those days come along annually, write those people you're close with a note or give them a phone call. Talk about being a blessing to people. That is incredibly powerful. Change your Google Calendar today. So my mentor did this with me, and he said something along the lines of, you know, if, you're, if your dad was still around, he would say that he's proud of you and that God is doing beautiful things in the life of City Church, something that my dad unfortunately was not able to see. Church, imagine building sacrificially with gold and silver and precious stones. And then at the end of it, hearing Jesus tell you, I'm so proud of you and what you've been building. And I want you to know that what you've been up to matters eternally. And now imagine hearing that after laboring your whole life in relative obscurity, uncertain that your labor in the Lord has really made any difference, that God has really given any kind of growth in light of your planting and watering. And now imagine hearing that 
after living faithfully, yet hearing nothing affirming at all from friends and family, and maybe even experiencing some real persecution. I'm proud of you, and I love you. What you've done has mattered eternally more than you know. And no offense to my mentor, no offense to my dad, but their feedback is nothing compared to Jesus' commendation and approval. And that is the kind of reward you'll get if you take up your cross and live counterculturally and quite honestly miss out on some things that the world will tell you are unmissable. But if you live for yourself, functionally living as if you're not really dying, as if the things that matter the most are right in front of your face, as if transcendence and eternality are basically a mirage, your experience of Judgment Day will be very different. Sure, you might still be saved, although I gotta warn you that flagrant patterns of disobedience and lifelong self-interest are very concerning spiritually and might indicate inauthentic confession of Jesus Christ. But even if you're indeed saved, do you really want to maximize your experiences of worldly pleasures and then escape from a burning house without anything to show for eternally? City Church, when we're building, let's remember death. Let's remember what's coming that we might joyfully build with costly materials. And do you see why Paul writes this to a very fractured church? Unity in the church of Jesus Christ is, at least its parts, a function of clarity concerning the main thing, the foundational thing, namely Jesus. It's a function of mindfulness that death and judgment are coming. It is a function of longing for a reward on judgment day that vastly exceeds any reward or status we might gain for ourselves in this life by pursuing our own interests. Forget those things and the whole church splinters. Remember them and then the church, while never perfect, unifies and thrives. The rest of our time this morning, I want to zoom in a bit and speak more directly to a group of people that I just mentioned. Those of you who are really feeling the costs of your obedience, the costs of your desire to live a holy life that pleases the Lord. Maybe you feel as though you're living in relative obscurity, missing out on various opportunities to promote yourself and missing out on some of the fun that other people seem to be having. Maybe you're not receiving much in the way of affirmation from those who are close to you. You might even be getting a whole lot of grief for it. Or maybe you're seeing all the negative news about the church, factionalism, abuse, theological decay, etc., and you're wondering, is this, is this thing really going to hold up? Which brings us to our second question. Did you know that you're a temple? Look at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We Western individualists need to understand here that this 
you is plural, referring to the community of believers, the church. And accordingly, the more helpful translation at the end of verse 16 would be something like, God's Spirit dwells among you. It's true that Paul later refers to individual bodies as, as temples of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But here, the reference is to the community of believers being the very temple of God. City Church, did you know that together we are God's temple and that the Holy Spirit dwells among us? Which, by the way, helps explain the gold, silver, and precious stones language in verse 12, seeing that King Solomon used precisely these kinds of resources to build the Jerusalem temple. And, and precious stones make yet another appearance in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, in description of the new city Jerusalem, which itself has the dimensions of a temple instead of containing a temple. And the new heaven and the new earth, the immediate presence of God will be everywhere. It will be available to all of God's people, not just the chief priests. And the people of God will be there worshiping and working and enjoying each other's company. It's going to be some party. Which sure takes the sting out of death for those who are in Christ. Death ends up being for them a new and a, a beautiful beginning where all of the discouraging and the sad and the painful things become untrue. And this beginning has no end. But even now, God is present with us, his temple, by means of his Holy Spirit. He's present in every season. He's present in every circumstance, which means that if we're not experiencing or seeing his presence, it's not a proximity issue, it's an awareness issue. The church isn't Macy's, praise God, because they're not doing so hot right now, and who knows how long they'll be around don't want to be tied at the hip these days with any department store. Amen? And since this isn't a Macy's, God's not riding an escalator back and forth between two floors. He's not coming and going based on your mood or how your quiet time was that morning. But are we aware of God's presence? Do we see evidence of his power and work? Are we even looking for such evidence? Are we praying that we would be filled with the Spirit in the way that Paul exhorts us to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, experiencing the joy of the Lord and being conformed more and more into the character and to the likeness of God? And by the way, one of the primary ways to go about that is be encouraged to worship corporately, to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. All of this with an attitude of thanksgiving unto the Lord. Corporate worship is one of the primary means to pull the string on the lawnmower. So if you're skipping out on corporate worship because it's not convenient or you're more in favor with, you know, sort of a, a lone ranger spirituality, you're actually missing out on the joy and the edification that comes through spirit-filledness. Yes, the Holy Spirit still lives in you if you're in Christ, which is a guarantee for all believers, but you're missing out on true spirit-filledness and the Ephesians 5 sense of joy and vibrancy and growth if you're disconnected from the body. And did you know that the Holy Spirit of God is watching over his church, protecting it from all kinds of evil and threats, ensuring that even if the church of Jesus 
takes a few right hooks along the way. It will never collapse. Ensure that the church, broadly speaking, will endure, even if some of its local manifestations come and go. Ensuring, and this is the really alarming reminder, ensuring destruction, verse 17, for anyone who destroys God's temple. Some of those right hooks are rather serious, though. And some of you have been wounded by them. You've been part of spiritual communities, significantly damaged by self-focused, domineering, or abusive spiritual leaders, possibly experiencing the produce of that abusiveness in a very personal way, or you've walked through devastating church splits catalyzed by influential and irrepressible critics, or maybe people in your spiritual community, they talked about you behind your back, they gossiped, whatever you want to call it, leaving you ostracized and humiliated. Fill in the blank here. And now you're, you're wounded, and the people that caused the wound seem to be getting along rather lovely in comparison. Well, verse 17, those who land such blows against the church, they will get some divine blowback from God. Because we're all dying, and accordingly we will all appear before the victorious, and the returning king. Those in Christ who invest their lives in temple building, they'll get praise from Christ Jesus himself. Those in Christ who waste their time building vapid worldly things will still be saved, but as through the fire. And those who counter the temple building and seek to destroy the church, God will destroy them, sentencing them to eternal condemnation. Spiritual leaders are particularly in view here, thus this warning you might be familiar with in James chapter 3. Verse 1, that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But the principle applies to everybody, leader or not. Mess with the church of Jesus Christ. Rend it with abusiveness, with gossip, with false teaching, whatever. And there is destruction in your future, no matter how impressive or immortal you might feel no matter how big and bad you might feel. In fact, many that harm the church look very impressive on the outside. They're very accomplished. They're important people in their communities, but they will not fool God. Look at verses 18 through 20. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God, and he catches the so-called wise in their craftiness by turning their craftiness against them, which is a reference to the book of Job chapter 5. And he knows the true thoughts of the wise. Enemies of the church might deceive themselves they might deceive other people, but they will never deceive God. And I really hope this isn't the case, but do any of us need to hear that warning this morning? It's worth asking. For the rest of us, though, we need to be really clear that none of this is, is grave dancing, which, biblically speaking, is despicable. God very emphatically states that he, this is from Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 11, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So to the degree that we feel differently, we're actually sitting in judgment upon God in the way he feels. But we can be very confident that God will deal with wrongs committed against the church and that he will deal with them very comprehensively 
and eternally. And that's a real comfort for those of us who have been wronged and for church communities who have been grievously affected by predatory behavior. Comfort that helps us trust God and continue walking with him in seasons of chaos and trauma and persecution rather than abandoning our faith and pursuing worldly wisdom. Comfort that protects us from pursuing vengeance. We'll close with this really beautiful reminder in verses 21 through 23. These are three of the most beautiful, in my opinion, verses in the entire Bible, not exaggerating. And this reminder applies to all believers, no matter your state right now. It applies to thriving Christians, discouraged Christians, celebrating Christians, mourning Christians. Listen to this. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Paul begins actually with a correction. Don't factionalize. Don't rally around human beings in the tribal sense. Stay away from that. But, but the redirection is stunning. We, that is Paul, Apollo, Cephas, belong to you, the church, as servant ministers of the gospel, not the other way around, which means that you get to benefit from all of us and our particular spiritual gifts instead of pedestaling one of us and missing out on what the others have to offer. And then it gets even better. And, and you belong to Christ. You are his servants, his people, his, his family. A status that nobody can take from you. That no bad actor can ever strip from you. So if you want to boast, Corinthians, Boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.31, if you remember that text. And in your boasting, you have the freedom to enjoy Jesus, to rest in his presence like Mary, sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching, and beholding his face. And Christ is God's, certainly not less divine than the Father, but a servant in his own right, agreeing with and obeying the will of the Father along the lines of what we're told in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A substitutionary death, his for ours, that by grace we might be saved through faith, even though we were previously dead in the trespasses and sins in which we were walking. Some of you may be familiar with the Orlando Airport. They are really killing it over there these days. If you haven't had a chance to visit, I would encourage you to do so. Just give yourself a lot of time. You're going to want to have a lot of time when you're visiting. And when you come back, it's kind of like this grand presentation. You come down this escalator. See, this, see how meta this is. You thought we were only talking about escalators one time, but here we are again. They have them at Macy's. They have them at the airport. You come down this escalator and just kind of this grand reveal <laughs> as, you're, as you're going toward the bottom. And there's sort of two kinds of things happening at the bottom. You have some, some men and women standing there in, in uniforms holding signs that have people's name on them. And the people will just sort of get off the escalator and then they'll walk over to the signs and like, yeah, it's, it's me, and then, you know, go find a vehicle and be driven to the hotel or whatever. But then you have people that are coming down the escalator, 
and they see family, and they see friends, and then they just kind of run over there, and you see hugs, and you see tears, and you see smooches, and all sorts of things over there, sometimes really emotional. And the difference is these people, in a sense, belong to those people. And they are overwhelmed by it. They are enthralled. And so I would ask you to consider this question, how are you relating to Jesus? Are you relating to Jesus like a uniformed person at the bottom of the escalator? God bless them, holding a sign. Or are you relating to Jesus as if you belong to him, running to him? embracing him and enjoying him. And here's the last thing I'll say. When you posture yourself towards Jesus in that way, we're talking about a factionalized church here in Colt Pines. Guess what happens? The other things that you've been factionalizing about start to melt away. An airport employee could come to you near the baggage claim and say, hey, about your luggage. Um, we were transporting some jet fuel and we spilled some of it on your luggage when it was on the tarmac, and then someone was having a smoke break and they, they tossed their cigarette butt, and it lit your luggage on fire, and so it's, it's burning right now on the tarmac, and we're really sorry about that. You could hear something like that, but be so enthralled with these family members that you're with and love and belong to that you could look that person in the eyes and say, that's okay, but that will never happen unless you're being taken by something way greater than your luggage. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to meditate on your scripture, and I pray that you would give us, as we were pleading with earlier, a fresh encounter with the beauty and the goodness of Christ, that we would remember that those in Christ do belong to him. And no one can take that from us. No one can strip that away. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus.